Welcome to CX for CXOs. Last week, Google released a report called Decoding Decisions, Making Sense of the Messy Middle. And this report seeks to understand the complexities of purchase decision-making processes, especially at a time when e-commerce is growing due to COVID. If you didn't read the 100-page report, you don't need to worry because I did, and I'm going to summarize that for you today. I'm your host, Namrata Balwani. I'm a digital and customer experience consultant. I love being at the intersection of business marketing data and technology. Thanks for listening to this episode. This week, we're going to be talking about Google's messy middle study. I'm also going to tell you about the chief marketer pre and post COVID survey and one interesting tool to understand a competitor's tech stack. Before we begin, just a word to please submit any feedback at cxforcxos.com. Google released a study across 31 product categories and about 31,000 in-market shoppers. The purpose was to test whether brand preference and cognitive bias remain stable across different categories or do they change. And these represented categories across, so for example, everything from travel to financial services, CPG, retail, utilities. Ultimately, this was a simulation, so it was not meant to be a real-life study, but they did simulate the whole purchase decision-making process that these 31,000 shoppers had. Simply put, they observed several hundred hours of shopping tasks that these shoppers performed. So they were asked to research a product for which they were currently in market. These journeys were recorded using screen capture, audio and video, and the shoppers also talked them through what they were doing. They then worked with a company called the Behavioral Architects to analyze these journeys from the lens of behavioral science and therefore to distill what were the insights. What they really observed was that between the purchase trigger and the purchase, there are two states, exploration and evaluation. In the exploration stage, we as consumers tend to add brands, products, and category information to whatever is our mental uh, portfolio of products we wish to buy, right? And which brands we wish to buy from. And in the evaluation stage, we as consumers are in the process of narrowing down these options. In the backdrop of all this is something that they call exposure. And exposure is the awareness of brands and products in a category. So you as a a consumer have a sum total of all the information in your head about a particular category and about a brand from things you've seen, word of mouth, Uh, Maybe you've read it in a newspaper, maybe it's PR, it could have been something that was passively assimilated by you, it could be something as information that you actively sought out. So this is the broad spectrum of exposure and this is not a stage or a step. This is something that is a constantly changing backdrop and it's always present during the decision making process. So how do they actually do this measurement? Before the simulation began, the shoppers were asked to share their first and second favorite brands from a selection in a particular product category. And these preferences became the basis of the simulation. And during the simulation, when consumers were exposed to what they call six different biases, and I'll talk about those biases in a minute, but when shoppers were uh, were exposed to these biases, did preferences change with respect to their first and second most favorite brands forms the basis of this study. What were these six biases? One, category heuristics, basically shortcuts or rules of thumb that aid us in making a quick and satisfactory decision within a category. For example, 
megapixels when selecting a camera. The second one was authority bias, which is the tendency to alter our opinions or behaviors to match those of someone we consider an authority. The third is social proof, which is the tendency to copy the behavior and actions of other people in situations of uncertainty. The fourth is the power of now, which means we tend to want things now rather than later. Fifth is scarcity bias, which is essentially based on the economic principle that rare or limited resources are more desirable. The sixth is power of free, which basically describes the fact that we all love getting something for free. So what happened when they started looking at the results of this? When you take the idea of the power of showing up, implicit in their whole experiment is the idea that to take preference share away from a competitor brand, you have to be present when consumers are deliberating. How much of an impact did this have? It obviously varied product category to product category. For example, in auto purchase, when a second favorite brand was introduced as an option, 30% of shoppers changed away from their first preference. In certain categories, it was much lower. It's not terribly surprising that typically anything related to car hire, car insurance, any sort of financial services product would sit towards the right-hand side with much more susceptibility to switching versus other things like laptops, televisions, smartphones, which would be less susceptible to switching. In terms of social proof, they found that in almost all categories, that had a big effect on people moving away from their initial choice. For example, could be a three-star review versus a five-star review would make a big difference. So giving people evidence that other shoppers already have a positive experience with a brand, product, or service is very, very persuasive. In terms of authority bias, they found that it is still a very effective way to reassure shoppers. So if you, as a brand, you won awards, citations, expert reviews, this proves to be especially effective in categories where consumers feel at a disadvantage because they may not have enough domain knowledge, which could be, for example, in purchases of electronics or purchases of home improvement products. In terms of scarcity bias, it was the least effective. It could be more used in the final evaluation. So when the consumer has already landed on the e-com site and you say the sale is only on for the next three hours or last two products left in stock, at that time, scarcity bias plays a role, but not at the initial stages when they are just exploring. The power of free was pretty effective, and we all know that. We all love something free. So this could be in the form of a buy one, get one free offer. Immediate gratification of rapid delivery, which is a power of now, was not a huge differentiator, but it was a differentiator in certain categories like CPG, people ordering things like detergents and moisturizers. All of this saw a positive impact. Now, these are all individual biases, right? And a lot of these points are not something that we don't know. Probably these are just points that everyone doesn't apply consistently in a structured way. But what happened when they supercharged the second choice brand with all six biases? How much preference share could they take away from the favorite brand if they introduced all these biases during the exploration and evaluation process? That result is pretty impressive or pretty alarming, whichever way you look at it. Uh, the second choice of shampoo brand was able to take away a full 90% of preference away from the first choice brand. Typically, this ranged across all categories from 72% to 95%. The next step that they did was to actually create a fictional test brand to see how much preference share an unknown challenger might take. 
if it was able to hit up all the biases that they had talked about. And what they found is that fictional brands were able to shift between 28% to 87% of preference depending on the category. What does that mean? It means firstly that even a brand that you've never heard of can disrupt preferences in the messy middle. This is especially true of D2C brands. We see that powerful cues like free delivery, free returns, a lot of user reviews, expert endorsements do make a difference to how D2C brands rise. However, brands still matter. So despite their best efforts to swing things in favor of fictional brands, in every category, there were shoppers who remained loyal to their favorite brand even when the alternative offered a much, much superior proposition. In some cases, more than half of all category participants were uninterested in shifting away from their favorite. The third is that presence can be all it takes to shift preferences in the messy middle. So there is huge value in showing up at the right moment, and this effect is visible across categories. What does this really mean practically? What will one do as a result of this or understanding this? The first one is to ensure brand presence. So your product or service is strategically placed in front of customers at a time when they are exploring. And for this, you would use data to qualify and categorize shoppers who are exploring. You would look at providing a better user experience. You would look at presenting all the information in a way that enables them to make these decisions. The second is to intelligently and responsibly employ behavioral science principles. So you would look at, again, what is the data telling you? What kind of ad messaging do you need to put out? What kind of content you need to create? What should shoppers see on your site that would entice them to make that purchase? And also using tactical things like retargeting, like basket abandonment messaging. The third one is closing the gap between trigger and purchase. So people spend less time being exposed to competitor brands. If you make it harder for customers to find information, they're going to start looking elsewhere and they're probably going to get influenced by competitors. The idea is to use all your resources from content to design to usability and user experience to ensure that you are able to retain as many of those exploratory customers as possible. And you also need to optimize basic things like poor website speed, how does it render on mobile, is there any inconsistent messaging, is there inadequate information, missing product details, do people need to jump through a lot of hoops to find the information. Chief Marketer did a survey called COVID-19 Marketing Outlook. They surveyed Fortune 1000 marketers from across a range of verticals and this was between February and March, and then again between April and May. One of the questions they asked was whether for 2020, marketing budgets were increasing, decreasing, or flat. Pre-COVID, only 14% of marketers said that marketing budgets were decreasing, but post-COVID, 55% said that. For B2B, it's actually even more pronounced. 64% of B2B marketers said their budget is decreasing post-COVID. There were only 7% of marketers who said that their budgets were increasing, and I suppose these were the ones working in e-commerce companies. The second question was around which aspects of the marketing budget require the most spend, and pre-COVID it was content, paid ads, and events. No surprises that post-COVID events are down, but content and paid continue to be important aspects of marketing budget spend allocation. Interestingly, while earlier 19% of marketers picked MarTech in their top three line items, only 10% picked MarTech post-COVID. 
Do you want to understand what kind of tech stack your competitors use? Well, there are some websites that help you get that information. So I'll talk about two of them, BuildWith and Wabalizer. BuildWith is free for any lookup. So you go to the website, you feed in the URL, and it will give you in an organized fashion what kind of technologies and tracking tools that website is using. So for example, you put in amazon.com, you're going to understand what they use for analytics, what do they use for remarketing, what do they use as their e-com, CMS, and any other such things. And there's a whole bunch of them. The second one is called Wapalyzer. That's WAP with a double P, Wapalyzer. This is free with signups. So once you sign up, you get about 50 credits, free credits for a month, and each credit is equal to one lookup. And then you can do the same thing. You can feed in a URL and you can understand what kind of tech stack that company or that brand is using. There are obviously certain differences. I've noticed that both of them may not consistently pick out the same tools. One of them might miss one tool versus the other. So I always look at both and then I just cross-reference and compare and see if anything's missing as well. But it's really, really interesting to see what different kinds of technologies and tools companies are using. Now, obviously, this can only be done with a website URL. So what do you do for apps? There are two other sites I'm going to talk about, but neither of these are free. They are both paid tools. The first one is called Mighty Signal. Mighty Signal gives you all the technology and tools and SDKs that any kind of app would be using. But at least what they do in terms of free information is they give you data like what are the most used SDKs across the top 200 free iOS apps or the top 200 free Android apps. And once you subscribe, you can obviously do this for specific apps that you want to run a query on. The second one is called Apptopia. The starter pack is $2,000 per month and they don't actually give you any data off the cuff. These are two tools that you can use to understand what kind of technology people use while tracking apps. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learning more about purchase decisions and about how to query your competitors' tech stacks. Get in touch with me at cxforcxos.com if you have any show ideas or inputs. You will find all the show notes and links at cxforcxos.com for everything I've talked about today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love for you to review it. Please do that if you can. Thanks for listening and see you next time.